0: standing and take your Bibles and open to the book of Deuteronomy. And we're going to read a small portion from three chapters in Deuteronomy. Chapters 4, 6, and 32. So begin by turning to Deuteronomy 4 and verse 9. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 9. Only give heed to yourself... And keep your soul diligently, so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. And now to chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, and verses 4 through 9, very familiar to us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And now, Deuteronomy chapter 32 for our final passage. Deuteronomy 32, verses 44 through 46. Deuteronomy 32, 44 through 46. Then Moses came and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he with Joshua, the son of Nun. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are a personal God, that even though you are transcendent and exalted and lofty beyond anything that we can imagine, you have made yourself known to us. You have revealed yourself to us. In your word. And as we have just been reminded, we are to take your word to our hearts. And then we are to take your word and teach it to our children and our grandchildren. And that we are to do this with great care, with great skill, and with diligence. Father, in view of these things, I pray that you would help us as families to take heed to this pattern, that even now that we would take your word to heart, that you would revive our hearts, that you would refresh us by your spirit in the inner man. And that you would not allow us to just go through the motions and be here mechanically. You call us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we ask that you would enable us to do that even now. And Father, we pray that you would also help us as fathers and mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers to take this responsibility that you give to us to teach our children and grandchildren that we would take it with great weightiness, that it is incumbent upon us to pass down to the next generation your truth and your revelation. May you strengthen our homes and our families in this way, as we again return to this theme in our message, may you bring conviction where it needs to be brought. May you bring encouragement where it needs to be brought. May you give help and grace to all of us so that we can be faithful to you, to our families, and to our calling. Above all, Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he took the blame, that he bore the wrath, and that in him we are forgiven and justified. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, please take your Bibles, if you would, with me and open to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. We will be looking again at verse 4 as we continue our study of God's word to fathers, but I want to read verses 1 through 4 as we begin. So follow along as I read the word of God, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I read a very interesting article this week about greeting cards. According to the article, and I quote, our greeting cards tell the story of our social pathology end quote." In other words, greeting cards have a lot to say about where we are as a nation, and here's how. In 2007, Hallmark offered a line of over 800 different Father's Day cards. And for the first time, they offered Father's Day cards. For mothers, and this is what they said, for mother on Father's Day. Now, why in the world would Hallmark offer Father's Day cards to mothers? The answer, because of the absence of so many fathers from their families. Tragically, the state of fatherhood in America has fallen upon very hard times. Al Mohler says it this way, and I quote, In many sectors of our society, fathers are most noted by their absence. Indeed, millions of American children are growing up without any significant father figure, much less their biological father, end quote. Now, did you catch what Dr. Moeller said? Millions of American children are growing up in homes without a father. They're growing up in fatherless homes. And, beloved, the absence of fathers from their families and from their homes is one of the most significant social problems that we face as a nation today. But unfortunately, there is more. In addition to the millions of fathers who are physically absent from their homes, there is another problem that is even more widespread. It is the reality of fathers who are physically present in the home, but they are absent from their families in other ways. They are there, but they are not there. They are present... But removed, distant. They are fathers who have little to no involvement in the lives of their children. It is not uncommon at all for fathers to spend more time with the newspaper than with their children. It is not uncommon for fathers to spend more time with their television than with their children. It is not uncommon for fathers to spend more time with their fishing rod and golf clubs than with their children. And this is a tragedy of monumental proportions. The effects of absent or uninvolved fathers upon their children are devastating, Numerous studies have shown that children who have fathers who are absent or removed or uninvolved in their lives are more likely to not get along with their siblings, to have trouble academically, to not form new relationships, to abuse alcohol and drugs, to engage in premarital sex, to engage in criminal behavior, to drop out of school, to run away from home, to become homeless, to experience health problems and mental health disorders, and to have a lower life expectancy. I wholeheartedly agree with Doug Wilson who says there is a hunger problem in America that is a hunger for fathers. A hunger for fathers. So what does it mean to be a father? It means much more than simply producing children there is a vast difference between becoming a father and being a father. Becoming a father is merely an act of reproduction, but being a father involves nothing less than a total life commitment to your children. Listen to one preacher who said it this way. When it comes to parenting, many Christian fathers are still pagans. Wow. That's strong. When it comes to parenting, many Christian fathers are still pagans. That is a very strong, blunt statement, but I believe it is true. Fathers have plans for their careers, they have plans for their recreation, they have plans for their vacation, they have plans for their retirement, but very seldom do fathers have plans for parenting. Very seldom. As the saying goes, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. But let me take this even further. Not only is it imperative for a Christian father to have a plan for parenting his children, it is imperative that the plan that he uses be a biblical one. Otherwise, he is parenting as a pagan rather than as a Christian. So the primary source that a Christian father is to use in developing a plan for parenting is not what he views on television. It's not from secular magazines, articles, and books. It's not pop psychology. It's not what is trending in the public school system. It's the Bible. It's the Bible. So if a father is to have a biblical plan for parenting... He will use the Bible as his curriculum because the Bible contains, listen carefully, God's plan for parenting. Which, by the way, is vastly different from the culture's plan for parenting. And one of the most critical passages in the Bible on God's plan for parenting is Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Now, as we said last time, this is a one-verse manual on parenting, and it was revolutionary in the context of the Roman world of Paul's day. And we noted last time that in this one verse, there are three chapters, if you will, marked by the three Roman numerals in your bulletin. So point number one, or chapter number one, is the address to fathers. It's found in the very first word. And you will note that Paul specifically addresses fathers rather than both parents and that is because the fathers are the leaders of the home and in general they are in need more so than the mother of what Paul has to say here. And then chapter number 2 or point number 2, the warning to fathers also found there in verse 4. Paul begins his instructions to the fathers with a prohibition. Paul's great concern at this point is about the father's abuse of their parental authority, and so he exhorts them to exercise their parental authority that is God-given with restraint so he warns them not to abuse their authority, not to use their authority in such a way that it provokes unnecessarily their children to anger. And we looked in detail at that last time and we noted 21 examples of how fathers are prone to provoke their children to anger. And now this morning we come to the final point, the final chapter on this one-verse parenting manual, Roman numeral 3, the responsibility of fathers... Also in verse 4. And here Paul makes a strong and dramatic contrast. And that is noted in the word but. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So Paul begins verse 4 by stating what fathers must not do. And then in great contrast, he states what fathers must do. So when it comes to parenting, there are both negative components and positive components. There are things that a father must avoid in his parenting, and then there are things that a father must do in his parenting. So now let's begin to look at what Christian fathers are to pursue, beginning with the phrase, bring them up. There are two verbs in verse 4. The first is do not provoke to anger. And the second is bring them up. Both of them are present imperatives, which means that they are both commands that are to be obeyed by Christian fathers as a way of life. This is to be a lifestyle for the Christian father. Now the second verb that we're looking at here in the latter part of verse 4, it is a wonderful word. And it has this idea to feed, to nourish. It was sometimes used of a mother who nursed her baby, and that is a beautiful picture of tenderness, and love, and care, and concern. It's the same Greek word that Paul used back in chapter 5 of Ephesians in verse 29, translated nourishes. He's talking about how the husband is to love his wife. He is to nourish his wife and cherish his wife as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. And so the Christian husband is to nourish his wife. He is to care for her with tenderness and a Christian father is to nourish his children. Now, when used to fathers, this word has the idea of to rear up, to bring up. It could be translated to parent, to parent. So this is the verb, bring up your children, rear up your children, parent your children. But how is a Christian father to do this? He says, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's how a Christian father is to parent his children. That's how he is to bring them up, to rear them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, before we begin to sort of draw out the details of this verse, I, I want to back up a bit and provide you with a larger biblical vision of the responsibilities of fathers. Father's. And I want to begin by giving a biblical definition of parenting. And here's what it is. Parenting is a commitment to the total development of the whole child physically, that is the body, mentally, that is the mind, Socially, that is, relationships with other people. And spiritually, that is, his or her relationship to God. So let me repeat that. Parenting is a commitment to the total development of the whole child physically. It's in four ways. Physically, mentally, socially, and spiritually. Now, this is something that both mothers and fathers are responsible to do together. They both have the God-given responsibility to train and to educate their children in this way, especially in the truth of God, but it is to be done so under the leadership of the Father because God has made the Father to be the head and the leader of his home. Now with that in mind, let's begin to again develop a bigger vision, a biblical vision of the responsibility of parents, especially that of fathers, by turning to the book of Genesis in chapter 18. So turn with me to Genesis 18, and we're going to look at a few verses together from the Old Testament which establish a biblical vision of parenting, a biblical curriculum, a biblical plan, if you will, for parenting. Genesis 18, we come to a chapter in which we're dealing with Abraham. Genesis 18 and verse 16. Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom. These are the angels that appeared to him, to Abraham. They looked down toward Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. Verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Note verse 18, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then verse 19, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about. About him. So, note that Abraham is to teach his children, he is to teach his grandchildren, and what is he to teach them? To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And now turn to Exodus chapter 10. And here we move from Abraham to Moses. Exodus chapter 10 we are in the midst of the plagues that God is raining down upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptians. And I want you to notice in Exodus 10, verses 1 and 2, what God says to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. God is hardening his heart so that he can demonstrate his power. This is Romans 9. This is what Paul talks about there. Now notice verse 2. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses was to teach his children, he was to teach his grandchildren about what God did to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians in the plagues and in the exodus. And then there is the book of Deuteronomy which we read earlier and there are many passages there that develop this biblical vision of parenting, the word of God as Deuteronomy indicates, is to permeate the home. It is to be everywhere. It is to be a part of the formal conversation, the informal conversation. It is to be everywhere in the home of a godly family. And then we have Joshua twenty-four, 15, well-known verse where Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so Joshua, like Abraham and like Moses before him, led his family To worship the Lord. And then another verse, Psalm 78. Turn there with me for a moment. Psalm 78 and the first eight verses. This is a wonderful psalm reminding us as parents of our responsibility to teach our children the Word of God. Psalm 78. Verses 1 through 8, listen, O my people, to my instruction, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. That the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments." and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. And so again, just in these few select passages, we see the precedent of a father's and parent's responsibility to pass on the revelation of God to their children. And then there is the entire book of Proverbs, which is a large parenting manual written by Solomon to his sons, exhorting them to embrace wisdom. So again, beloved, both parents, under the leadership of the father, are responsible for the training of their children, especially when it comes to the things of God. And they are to even have a multi-generational approach. And what I mean by that is that the parents are not only teaching their children, but they're teaching their children to teach their children. So it is to have a multi-generational impact. And so fathers, let me say this very plainly. Your responsibility is much bigger than merely bringing your kids to church and putting them in a Sunday school class. It involves that, but it is much bigger than that. So with that in mind, turn back with me to Ephesians 6 and verse 4. And note again, Paul's instructions to the fathers, fathers, Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He doesn't say, fathers, merely take your children with you to church and place them in a Sunday school class. He says, you bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so, fathers, you are responsible to raise your children in two ways. Again, to repeat the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word discipline, guess what it means? Discipline. It means discipline. It means to train. It has the idea of the overall training of your children, the overall education of your children, and it includes, watch this, physical discipline or corporal punishment. Now, at this point, it is really helpful to distinguish between two types of parental discipline. Note them well. Number one is formative discipline. This is sometimes known as formative instruction. And the other is corrective discipline. Formative discipline or formative instruction is forming and shaping your children's character and training them in all aspects of life. It is the overall training and shaping and developing of your children, especially their character. And one of the ways that you are to do this as a Christian father, as a Christian parent, is through what is called family worship. Fathers, you should be leading your family in family worship on a daily basis unless you are providentially hindered. You are to do this in your home. God is worthy to be worshipped in the home. And he is to be worshipped under the leadership and the direction of Christian fathers. Now, let me mention something that is helpful with regard to family worship. We want to keep it real simple. There are the three S's of family worship. This helps us to remember it. It is simply this, Scripture. Singing and supplication. So, what do you do in family worship? You read the Bible, you read the scripture, you teach the scripture, you sing, and you pray. It's that simple. And this is something that is very important for fathers to embrace this responsibility. But there is much more to formative discipline than family worship. Family worship involves a relatively very small part of the day, and so what are you going to do with your children with the rest of the day? Well, listen to this. As a parent, you must view all of life as a classroom. All of life as a classroom. The training and the education of your children is not something that you do only in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, or 30 minutes of family worship. You are always teaching your children something whether you realize it or not. There are multitudes of training opportunities throughout the day, some of which are planned and some of which are not planned. And what your children are always doing is they are watching you seeing how you respond, seeing what you say, what you do not say, how you deal with a myriad of situations and people, and they are learning from you by watching you. And so in that vein, all of life is a classroom. Your children are learning all the time from you. And in addition, as a way of life, as a parent, you are to be thinking in this way that at all times you are to be teaching your children because all of life is a classroom. You are to be teaching proactively, diligently, your children about the character of God, about the word of God, about what God requires of people. You are to lovingly teach them to obey God's word and to obey you as their parents. Again, do this lovingly, do this gently. You are to lovingly explain to them the consequences of disobedience. That is very important. And this is where corrective discipline comes in. Now listen to a quote by Ted Tripp. He says, formative instruction or formative discipline should be happening all the time. This is 24-7, so to speak. Corrective discipline should be applied only when behavior needs to be corrected, End quote. So formative discipline is an ongoing thing throughout the day, all the days of the week, and then at different points in time throughout the day and throughout the week, there is this other side, The corrective discipline. So what do you do when, not if, but when your children disobey? What do you do according to the Bible? You correct them. You correct them. And there is a two-step process to the correcting of your children. First, gently give the child a verbal rebuke a verbal rebuke and do this gently with love not yelling not screaming not shaking them not out of control gently give the child a verbal rebuke reminding them of the standard that they are to follow well, that's step 1 hopefully the child will be rescued at that point and come back to obedience but if not There is a second step in corrective discipline. If the child continues to disobey, according to the Bible, then what do you do? Spank. Nope, not yell and scream. That's not the biblical pattern. Spank. Spank. Now, this is fast becoming the least popular message for the children. They like the one last week, But when you bring spanking into the message, it becomes very unpopular. I read something this week, very interesting, that as late as 1992, about 20 years ago, most family physicians and pediatricians supported the use of corporal punishment. Isn't that interesting? But my, how things have changed. Dramatically. Today, spanking is very much frowned upon by society, including by the supposed parenting experts. And some even consider it to be child abuse, some even want to make it criminal behavior. That is to say, if you spank your children, you could be arrested or put in jail. It's abuse. But in spite of what the culture says, God's plan for parenting does in fact involve spanking. Spanking. According to Proverbs 22.15, it says there is something in the heart of your child. And what is it? Folly. Foolishness. And then the verse goes on to say that there is a method that God ordains and sanctions that will remove the foolishness from the heart of the child. And what is that method? The rod of correction. The rod of correction. And that is a biblical endorsement mandate for spanking. Proverbs 23, turn here for just a moment. Proverbs 23 and verse 13 and 14. It says it so plainly, so clear. Again, the book of Proverbs is a large manual on parenting. And look at what it says in chapter 23 and verse 13. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. I mean, the child might say, You're going to kill me, stop. But the child's not going to die. Verse 14, you shall strike him with the rod. And notice the result and rescue his soul from Sheol, from death. That is a significant statement. Very significant. It is clear then, beloved, that God's plan for parenting involves spanking. There is a biblical warrant and mandate for corporal punishment. But what about the parent who says, you know, I just love my child too much to spank them. I just can't do that. I love them too much. Well, there's a proverb for that. Proverbs 13.24 He who withholds his rod loves his son. Is that what it says? He who withholds the rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. So listen carefully. No parent withholds the rod from his or her child because of love for the child. The only reason why a parent would hold the rod from the child is because the parent loves self, not the child. So the issue is not, do I do discipline or do I love the child, but you discipline because of love. It is an expression of love. It is an expression of care and concern about the well-being of the child. Why? Because spanking is like medicine for the child. That is what spanking is. When the child becomes physically sick, what do you do? You take the child to the doctor. That may involve getting a shot. It may involve a procedure. It may involve having to drink nasty medicine. But no parent would say, my child is sick, but I love them too much to take them to the doctor to get medicine or to have a shot or to have a procedure that's unpleasant. That isn't love. That isn't love at all. And the same is true when it comes to spanking. Spanking is remedial. It is a remedy. It is to drive the foolishness out of the heart of the child. It is like medicine for the child. It is not pleasant. I do not enjoy spanking my children at all. And I tell them, as you have told your children, this is going to hurt me more than it is going to hurt you. They don't believe it, but it's true. It's painful for a parent to apply the rod to the child. But it's part of the overall training and the intention of spanking, beloved, listen, is to instruct them. It's not just to punish them. It's to instruct. It's a part of their education. It's a part of their learning. So let me give you some further things to think about when spanking your child. Three things. Number one, spank privately. And this is for the benefit of the child and for the benefit of the parent. It's for the benefit of the child in that you want to do this privately, not publicly, because you don't want to humiliate the child, right? And then secondly, you want to do this privately because if you do it publicly in the culture that we live in, it very well may land you in trouble. So do it privately. For the sake of the child and for the sake of you. Number two, spank under control. Spank under control. So, when the child disobeys, you don't do what Scott suggested a minute ago and fly off the handle and start beating the child out of a fit of rage. You control yourself. Again, you may need to take the time out. Like we talked about last time, the time out is for the benefit of the parent. So you can calm down and then be controlled. And before you spank the child, explain why they are being spanked. Don't just haul them off into the room and start spanking them and they have no idea what's going on. Explain to them little so and so, this is what you did. And now here are the consequences. The children are getting nervous. About right now. And also, you don't want to spank the child so hard that you injure the child. I mean, that's not the intent. I mean, you don't want to break bones and open skin and all that kind of thing. You don't want to injure the child, but you also want to spank hard enough, listen, that they feel pain. If you spank the child, don't have a diaper on and then thick pants and spank on the bottom in that way, and they don't feel anything but a little pressure. You need to spank hard enough so that they feel pain. Why is that important? Because the child needs to associate sin and pain. That is so critical. They need to understand that sin has painful consequences. And I tell my children that over and over and over again when I spank them, that sin hurts. Sin is painful. Sin has consequences. And then after you have spanked the child, immediately reaffirm your love for that child. Say it verbally. Embrace them, love them, kiss them. Let them know that you're not hateful towards them. This is love. So spank privately, spank under control. And then thirdly, I love this, spank evangelistically. Spank evangelistically. Very important. When your children disobey and they have come to a place where they deserve to be spanked, this is a wonderful time to explain and to remind your child of his or her sins problem. Remind them that they have a sin problem, that they need a savior This is a wonderful time to bring the gospel into the situation. And listen, I would even encourage you to do this. Every now and then, don't spank the child even when they deserve it. Because this can be an opportunity to teach them about mercy. Little Johnny, you did such and such. You deserve to be spanked. and Normally, I would spank you, but on this occasion, I am going to show you mercy. Because this is how God is with us. He does not give us what we deserve. And that can be another opportunity to bring out the reality of the gospel. Well, there's the second word in Ephesians 6.4 in terms of the Father's responsibility. It's the word instruction. This is a, a verbal term. It literally means to place in the mind, to set in the mind. And so the idea is speaking to the child in such a way that you're putting something into the mind of the child. And what is it that you are to put into the mind of the child? The truth of God. So fathers, you are responsible to establish in the mind of your children, listen, a biblical world view. You are to teach them how to view all of life from a biblical, a distinctively biblical frame of reference. You are to take the truth of God, put it into their heads. Teach, 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 instruct, instruct, instruct. And this isn't just doing Bible study, but listen, in every subject that there is in the world, you are to teach your children that subject in a God-centered way. Teach them about history from a God-centered perspective. Teach them about science from a God-centered perspective. Teach them about language and the arts from a God-centered perspective. Even when it comes to math, you can teach your children math from a God-centered perspective. One plus one equals two. Why? Because God made it that way. God made it that way. So teach them. Place the truth of God in their minds now this word instruction it includes the idea of warning and that is why some translations translate it admonition which is a verbal warning so again the thought is that all of life is a classroom you are to be about the instruction of your children and part of that listen involves warning them about the consequences of sin that is very key as parents, one thing that we can't do, you can't stop your children from sinning. Can't do it. They're natural sinners. But what we must do as parents is, with all that we have, seek to restrain them from sin. And the illustration that I would use for that is Eli in the book of 1 Samuel. And you know what God did to Eli? God killed Eli, and why did he do it? Because of his failure to restrain his two sons from sinning. They were corrupt priests, and Eli just let them do it. As a result, God killed Eli, God killed both of his sons. Now, finally notice in Ephesians 6.4 the phrase, Of the Lord. So the discipline... And the instruction that fathers are to give their children, where does it come from? Does it come from the culture? Does it come from the world? No, it comes from the Lord. So this is God's mandate. This is God's pattern. This is God's plan for parenting. This is a responsibility that God himself gives to the fathers to train, to educate, to discipline, to nurture, to care for, to educate their children in the ways of God. Now in light of this, fathers can err in two directions. We've talked about this before. Number one, by being abusive with their children. That is a major mistake. And on the other hand, fathers can err in this direction by being passive with their children. And Ephesians 6.4 prohibits both, doesn't it? It prohibits both. Fathers, if you are to obey Ephesians 6.4, if you are to be a spirit-filled father, as the context is talking about, then you will not abuse your children, nor will you be passive with your children. Instead, you will spend your life training them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I like what Vodi Bauckham says, quote, When you look into the eyes of your children... Do you mostly see a future doctor, lawyer, or linebacker? Or do you see a person who will spend eternity in either heaven or hell? In either heaven or hell. The way you view your children is to be much bigger than anything that they will experience in this life. As a father, you are to not only prepare them for life in this world, you are to prepare them most of all for eternity. This week I listened to an interview about fatherhood on the Family Life Today radio program Bob Lapine, Dennis Rainey, and they were interviewing Doug Wilson, who is a pastor from Moscow, Idaho. He has written a number of books on parenting his wife also has written things regarding parenting and at the end of their interview they asked Doug Wilson to imagine that his father were that he was in the studio and that he was sitting across the table and they asked him to give a tribute to his father as if he were really sitting there and i want to read to you what Doug Wilson said to his father Well, the thing I'd like to thank you, Dad, for is that I never, in all the years I was growing up, I never saw you and Mom raise your voices to each other. Never. I don't know what that would be like. I knew that you had issues, things you had to work out, but I knew about those things because you used them as illustrations when you gave talks. I wouldn't have known it from the home. The other thing, there were many other things, but you were dedicated to the absolute authority of the word of God. So that whatever happened, all we had to do was find out what the verse said. After that, that was what we were going to do. You taught me that we are to have no problem passages. The only problem we have with regard to a passage is the exegesis. What is it saying? But once we come to know what it is saying we are to give ourselves to obedience. You taught me that obedience is joyful. It is our liberty. It is the way God designed us to live. Obedience is no more a restraint on us than wings are a restraint on a bird. You taught me over many, many years that God wants his people to shine light in the world and to be hungry to lead people to Christ. You're the most dedicated effective, personal evangelist I've ever heard of. I'm just astonished at your gifts in that regard. You were a courageous father, not just in physical things, your service in the Korean War and how the Lord used you there and the things you did there. As a small boy, I was very proud of you for that sort of thing. You were easy to respect, easy to look up to, easy to honor. I never had to worry about that. But I also was very impressed and proud of your consistent commitment to the Word of God in situations where a Christian ministry that you were working for wanted to carry books that were written by liberal theologians and folks who were not any good for the soul. You took a stand. And you wound up leaving the ministry that you were clearly called to and worked in another job for a year or two to provide for the family because you couldn't work in that ministry. You were the one who taught me that taking a standover principle is what we're called to. Resolving it is God's responsibility. You taught me that. You taught me that the Christian life is a life of joy. The Christian life is a life of confessing your sins humbly. You taught me how to confess my sins. You taught me how to give myself to the word of God. If I could end all of that by saying, not only, Dad, am I grateful for all the things you gave me, but I wanted to say two things. One is that I love you very much, and two, I respect you more than any man I've ever met. I respect you more than any man I've ever met. What a tribute. What an amazing tribute. So fathers, when your children grow up, and if they are asked what kind of father did they have, what would they say? What will they be able to say? What kind of tribute will they be able to give to you when it's your funeral, fathers? What will your children be able to say about you? May God help us to be the kind of fathers that he calls us to be. Father, we thank you for your word, for your plan for parenting, for how clear it is, how good it is, how wise it is, We thank you for your design of the family for marriage as we have looked at in Ephesians 5, for the responsibilities of wives, the responsibilities of husbands. We thank you for the responsibilities of children and also for parents. And Father, I pray that you would help us as I have prayed many times in the In recent months, that you would strengthen our marriages, strengthen our homes, strengthen us as parents, as grandparents. May we, especially as men, seek to be wise and good and faithful leaders of our families. And if there are ways that we are being negligent, in the leading of our families. May we repent of that immediately. May we seek your forgiveness and may we seek to change by the power of your spirit. Father, we thank you that you are a father to us, that you are a perfect father, that you never abuse us, And that even when you bring discipline, it is out of love, it is for our good. And we thank you that you are not a passive father. You are not negligent. You are not disinterested. You are not absent. You are the perfect father. You are sufficient for us. And I pray that we as fathers would seek to imitate in our homes and treat our children the way that you treat us and lead them the way that you lead us. We thank you for these truths. We pray that you would take them and write them upon our hearts, seal them there. And again, we pray, we beg you to save our children, to save our grandchildren. Some of our children are young, some of them are grown. But if any of them are in an unconverted state, that you would be pleased to draw them to yourself and to save them. May you do that for the sake of your own name. And we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.